This podcast contains material that some listeners may find distressing. Content includes explicit language and themes related to workplace bullying, harassment, sexual harassment, intimidation, stalking, physical and sexual violence, discussions relating to self-harm and suicidality, disordered eating, other mental health issues, sexism, racism, and homophobia. Listener discretion is advised. Research has shown that for some survivors of trauma, retelling their story can be therapeutic and help them to regain a sense of control. Retelling your story can also help others who have had similar experiences and reminds them that they are not alone. Behind Blue Door's main purpose is to support, listen to, and connect survivors. Predators come in all races and genders. In no way is Behind Blue Doors attempting to single out one race or gender as being the dominant predator. We recognize that as listeners, these true accounts may be difficult to hear as the majority of people do not consciously engage or participate in discriminatory and harassing behaviors. You are our allies and we need your support. Allyship is a lifelong process of building relationships based on trust, consistency, and accountability with those who do not share the same privileges. As you embark on this journey with us, We ask you to keep an open mind and look for ways in which you can partner and support the women and girls in your lives. Welcome to the Behind Blue Doors podcast, where the women of law enforcement waive their right to remain silent and speak their truth. I'm Susan. My name is Lisa. We are your hosts. Welcome everyone to Behind Blue Doors. This is episode one of this fantastic new podcast. And we are so lucky today to have uh, Police Officer Lee with us. Before I turn it over to you, Lee, I'm just going to clarify a few things for the audience. There may be some acronyms used throughout the podcast that are well known to police officers. However, the public doesn't typically know. So one of these is PSA and it stands for the Police Services Act. So this is an act that all police officers who are actively serving in this capacity, they're governed by this. We definitely encourage you to look this up online for more information. The PSB stands for the Police Services Board that oversees policing. Also, you should know that in this podcast, we're not going to be identifying the ranks of any of the officers so that information will be beeped out. But these people hold high-ranking positions such as staff sergeant, inspector, deputy chief, and chief, as well as people who work in the criminal justice system. Lee, I'll turn it over to you. Hi, thank you. It's an honor to have been asked uh, to, to speak today. I'm really excited about your podcast and what it's going to do for uh, not just police women, but anybody who's gone through any type of abuse all the cycles kind of look the same, don't they? <laughs> I'd love to start uh, some blessings and gratitude. All right. Well, I have been a police officer in an Ontario police service for just went into my 21st year. I had, I loved my career. And although at times I always found things very misogynistic and sexist, I went along with the game. Uh, unfortunately. And I was promoted to sergeant in 2016. May of 2017, I was uh, sexually assaulted at a restaurant bar retirement party by a at the time who was promoted to 
prior to me unintentionally <laughs> reporting a sexual assault that occurred by him. Uh, the sexual assault would probably be considered minor within police culture, except, you know, I've learned that no crime is minor. And it's that narrative that prevented me from speaking out against it for six months, because I knew if I did, it was going to be career suicide. He used his power and privilege to intimidate me and to control me for no reason or desire. Don't know how much detail I want to go into about the actual assault. What I will say is it was extremely aggressive. So although the actual sex assault would be considered, let's say, minor <laughs> in you know the sex assault world, but I don't like to say that it's minor because so much has happened because of it. So he was extremely aggressive in his nature behind the sex assault. And me saying, fuck off and removing his arms from my body just only angered him. And then the fight was on. I repeatedly told him to stop and to fuck off. And he was pulling at my bra strap, slamming me back and forth on the bar chair. So hard that one class undid. And while I was protecting myself, from him, his arms just came in aggressively and attacked me about my body, my back, my chest, my neck, my face. And I remember in the moment feeling like my face was so hot and red, like I could feel that I could feel the heat. And I could remember, I remember thinking, oh my God, is this why isn't he stopping? Is this seriously happening to me? Like, and why isn't anyone helping me? It got to the point, like it was happening for long enough that all these thoughts were going through my mind. Why isn't he, why isn't anyone helping me sitting here at this table? These people are supposed to be my friends, you know, want a coworker, what two. And, um, why isn't anyone helping me? And eventually someone, one of the males, and I don't know which one yelled, you know, that's enough. And that was at the same time as I, I had just given him a brachial stun to his neck to stop the assault. And it was not like a successful. And when I say brachial stun, I'll explain it because I, I understand that that's police lingo, sort of. It's, uh, you know, taking the um, flat part of your inner arm by your wrist and making a fist, laying it out straight and smacking the inside of your wrist onto the neck of the person specifically to, to a specific area to basically stun the muscles in the brain. So what it does is incapacitates you, your mobility for a few seconds. So it wasn't the uh, most successful brachial stun. It, he did not fall to the ground or anything like that, but it did. He did a stumble and fell into the person that was sitting at the table with me. And when this happened, it's like in that moment, I, I don't, I have, I don't remember what happened in the next few moments after that. I know he left and went away from the table, I think because someone like was telling him to. And then I looked at everyone at the table and I'm like, what was that? What the fuck was that? 
And this is not this person who did this is this, this abuser. I am not the first person he did this to. I'm the last person he did this to. He's been a predator for 30 years of, of his career. And I had avoided him my entire career. So this isn't a situation like of not that it matters, <laughs> but he's not someone I hung around with or had social contact with in, in any sh- way, shape or form. But just no, go ahead. If, if there was behaviors before this happened, if he did have, if yeah. he was doing, because you said he was your superior officer on your platoon. No. So he was never my boss. He was a in homicide, but in the early 90s, he was charged with what would now be considered a hate crime, but he was charged at the time with assault. Uh, Him and another male officer off-duty had gone to a bar in Mississauga, and and this is all reported. It was the time, and he was also criminally charged. He was criminally charged with the assault on him and another male officer who's uh, left the service many years ago. I don't even know the officer. They were kicked out of a bar for making comments to to a gay male and asking him inappropriate questions about his sexuality. And when they left the bar, sorry, they were kicked out of the bar by security and According to the documents, they laid in wait outside the bar and followed these two men home. I don't know if don't know if that was by vehicle or by foot, but either way, they laid in wait and followed these these two men and then beat the crap out of them outside of their apartment building. And so one of it's reported that his head was smashed off the pavement. It gets reported, they both were criminally charged, and this abuser gets convicted. The judge in his sentencing fining them $1,500 each, and was only implementing a financial fine because their service was going to be taking care of them so severely. What they were going to have to deal with, the police service was going to be far worse than what this judge could implement as a penalty. Um, you look now and he was promoted three times after that. After this happens, he's promoted and and then because shortly after the incident that happened with me, he gets promoted a couple of months later to yeah. And this is not probably surprising to any of the police women listening because this is what we see. This is the the cronyism that takes place and the taking care of your, it's the thin blue line, right? You got to, you better not speak. You got to take care of your boys. So you had mentioned before that was the game, you played the game. Is this part of the game that you were referring to? No, like I, no. So when I say I played the game, I mean, and I hold so much shame for it and I've had to deal with that shame, but I am responsible for being a part of watching people being mistreated, watching people spoken to in a way that was inappropriate, that was unkind sometimes. And I didn't stand up and say, stop, or don't do that, or 
So as far as I'm concerned, I'm guilty of being to that because I didn't do anything to stop it. But most of us who are in the police culture know that we are taught from the very beginning that you you can't, you know, if you're a rat, you're done. And literally that's the word, it's, it's rat. You know, then you're not towing the blue line and you're not to be trusted. And then the narrative becomes that you're the problem. You're a problem, can't be trusted. And then all of a sudden people don't show up to your calls as you're 78. People aren't helping you. Can you clarify what a 78 is? Oh, yes. Sorry about that. So back up, you're back up. So you get called to something and another officer is, depending on the priority of the call, you almost always have another officer that attends with you because the service I work for, we don't ride in partners. Another officer is usually called to the scene. So that's what a 78 is. It's your, your backup or the second officer called to attend a call or a scene. I just hold a lot of shame in regards to that, but I've dealt with the shame and have, I will never behave that way again because my morals and values were definitely eroded over time through the police culture and having been away from it longer than most sometimes because of stress leave that I was on and then being diagnosed with cancer. So I was off uh, for, you know, about a year and a half. And in that time, although I was going through cancer and treatments, it really was a gift um, to my higher self because my morals and values began to be renewed in who I was before I became the, the robot in policing. So I'll get back to the assault. Some of sometimes when I'm speaking, I'm concerned that people might feel like it's rehearsed, but it, a lot of it is the training of a police officer to articulate my actions, my decisions and note taking. So <laughs> if it comes across that way, it's uh, part of the, I guess, ingrained, ingrained uh, police and culture that's obviously still within me. So yeah, no, I think that's totally understandable because as you say, you know, police officers are trained to essentially have uh, the utmost emotional regulation right when they're talking about anything, right? So, makes total sense. Right. Yeah. So, cut to the incident ends, I say nothing. After the incident ends, I I go to the bathroom. I I did up my bra class. I was wearing a triple class bra. And one had come undone in the assault and I, I did it up and I thought to myself in the bathroom, like I was just like going through, I was like, Oh my God, like this is like crazy. Like I've heard about him my whole career. I've been warned about him my whole career from other women, specifically senior women. Like when I was first uh, got hired in the division I was at, I was warned by the senior women, avoid him. His nickname was the rapist, the creep. So I avoided him my whole career. And as I sat in that bathroom, I was like, oh my God, like, I can't believe I've heard of it happening so many times. And in fact, the female that was sitting with me had told me so many times about him sexually harassing and and what I would consider assaulting her. And I was like, I can't report this because if I do, 
it's career suicide. And I had based all of my goals on this police service. I had done a, you know, I had previously to getting hired, did my, you know, BA in criminology and, and sociology and a minor in philosophy. And then I chose in 2012 to do a master's in leadership. And I was doing this while I was working full time in the special victims unit. And my whole purpose was to, was never to, to do the degree so that I could leave and work somewhere else. It was, I wanted to be the best leader I could be in this police service and bring about change. So I had worked so hard and I knew sitting there in that bathroom, sitting on that toilet, I was like, I'm, if I see anything, it's like, I'm, I'm done. Everything's done. And I thought about it over the next few, few months, obviously. And I was um, not proud of myself because I hadn't said anything, especially after having worked in the special victims unit. And part of that was helping these children and youth to have the strength to speak their truth and come to court and the importance of speaking the truth so that they can't hurt other people. So I was ashamed of myself for not having the courage to come forward. I just, but I knew what would happen to me. So six months later, I'm in my office who happened to be a female and uh, wines, the Weinstein news had broken, had been going on for about a week or so on the TV. So it was November, 2017, I think. And it was literally playing on CNN in my staff sergeant's office. And an officer came into the office while her and I were just talking before shift started and made a comment about the, the perpetrator, the abuser that abused me and numerous other women, made a comment that he was in the hospital and almost died that weekend with sepsis. And my, my comment was, too bad he didn't. And I was like, <gasps> wow, like I feel that way about somebody. And then I was like, I don't, I wouldn't, I don't wish death on anybody, but I disliked him that much. And then I looked at my female after this other officer left the room. And I said, you know, so-and-so like his name, which it is in the papers and stuff like that. So I don't know if I can say it or not, but so-and-so the abuser is the Weinstein of and she That's a very powerful statement. Yeah. And wow. she crossed her arms and I noticed her physical body change and appearance. And in that moment, I knew that he had done something to her. And she just looked at me and she said, yes, he is the Weinstein. Of and then I'm thinking I'm in the middle of girl chat. <laughs> so I tell her what happened at the bar at this party bar, I tell her what had happened in May of 2017. And when I'm telling her, I was reliving it. I was crying. My face was red. And she said to me, we have to report this. Like I have to report this. And I was like, Oh my God, no, like you can't. I'm like, my career's done. If you report this, she said, if there's anybody that can do this, it's you. And um, I know you're scared, but like I, I'm your, you know, it's my duty to report this now that I know. 
And I said, please don't say anything. Please just give me, give me 24 hours to like, just think about this. So she said, okay. And I came in the next day and I said, I'm really uncomfortable with it. I know what's going to happen. And uh, she said, I'm sorry, Lee, I've already put it through the, I already wrote a memo and put it through the chain of command. Oh, wow. So there it went. Uh, I was put in a position where I, I do need to say this. I think she is the only person that did the right thing. She really did. She did the right thing. She was, because all of us have said things and reported things in the past and then nothing gets done. She did do the right thing. I'm forever grateful for her for that. And it's not like it was easy for her. She was put through the ringer um, for basically writing a memo so strongly they had no choice but to call the SIU. Wow. So I am grateful for her for that. I know a lot of people have, you know, she didn't have the right to do that. Da, 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 and I, I get it, but she did the right thing. And I, you know, I'll leave it at that. She did the right thing. And I think it was a hard thing for what she did. And she, she paid her own price in a way for what she did for a certain period of time. And um, that's passed for her now. She's been able to move on with her career. Can you explore a little bit or talk a little bit more about, you said career suicide, if you were to come forward? Yeah, I, I knew coming forward. Well, for me, what career suicide looked like was promotion, desirable lateral move. Like you would be denied them. Yeah, that I would be denied to be able to move through the organization, that I would become, the narrative would be sent out through the organization, through the boys club, that I was a rat, that I was not to be trusted. So was this is your experience of what happened? It was what I feared was going to happen, and it is what has okay. happened. Okay. Yes, and I'll get into that. So as I said, I, I had so I had reported it unintentionally. The three people who witnessed it, who were my friends and colleagues, and uh, so they they collectively got situational amnesia, is what I'd like to call it. When interviewed by the SIU, they all failed to tell the truth. One appeared very fearful of her career and livelihood, and so she protected herself accordingly. The male who had also worked in homicide with the abuser, he suddenly got amnesia and um, this amnesia gained him a promotion to him saying that. So after he doesn't remember anything at the bar and doesn't see anything, even though I, we had a full on discussion about it after the incident happened, he then tells SIU, I don't know his exact statement, but I know that he apparently says he doesn't see it. He then gets promoted to an and then he gets placed as the officer in charge of internal affairs overseeing this case. Um, you know, sometimes I say to people, you can't make this shit up. How did that make you feel when you heard that? Oh my God. I was, I, I was so angry. I'm like, and I was like, and here we go. Here we go. Here's the, you know, now they, they're, they're putting their chess pieces into place to ensure the outcome is what they want. And that's how I felt. I became the target. So I don't know how much I want to say about this because I don't have 
it was told to me numerous times and became sort of common knowledge. And I've talked to somebody who said they walked in on them, but this abuser and my apparently had a sexual relationship. So at the time when this was all happening, I believe set the chess pieces in place to protect not only him, but the reputation of the organization. And then I became the target of, of how they needed to present me and the narrative they sold in order for that narrative to trickle down into the organization. So now I became, you know, enemy number one. So I was so upset when I saw that they put him in there and how inappropriate. And then when he got charged by the SIU, what happens is the service goes and suspends the officer. And at the same time that there's served notice of investigation upon the commencement of the criminal investigation, irregardless of the outcome, when you're getting suspended, you usually get also this notice of investigation. And that has to be served within six months of the criminal charge being laid. So the service I worked for just, oops, forgot. (laughs) They won't say they forgot. They say that they've been unable to find the paperwork. (laughs) He was never served that. And that was purposely to avoid accountability in a police service act investigation following criminal. I believe that was full on intentionally done. I felt the court system failed. Seen it fail so many times in domestics and sexual assaults and child abuse. The organization, after the, after we went to, we got to prelim. I testified at prelim and so did one other person. One of the witnesses sitting at the table who, as I said, got amnesia, situational amnesia and was protecting, I guess, her career and herself because having worked in SVU, I, did protect her and I did not tell SIU what he had done to her because she asked me not to. And I said, I, you as the victim and that being your story, I will not say anything to them about what's happened to you. I'm just ask, you know, just be honest about what you saw happen to me. Oh, absolutely. And then that is not what happened on the stand. And unfortunately due to her testimony, the charges were withdrawn with no prospect of conviction. And then what should have happened was a police service act investigation should have commenced immediately. But instead, before the criminal charges were even withdrawn, they had scheduled him to come back to work. Not even withdrawn. And he was scheduled to come back to work and do his use of force the following Tuesday. I lost it. I was like, oh my God, I'm currently the acting staff sergeant. He's coming back into the office. They're giving him access to everybody. I just, it was so sick to me because I was like, it's not like they don't know about previous reports about him. They do. They don't care. And they don't care about protecting women on this job. And they don't certainly care about protecting me. And as soon as I knew he was coming back, I went off. I'm like, I'm out of here. I'm like, I can't even imagine having to call him and liaise with him about a scene going on where I was working at the time. Completely inappropriate. No safety plan, no nothing. 
And at the same time, so I'll just say the organization brought him back to work before the criminal charges were even withdrawn, which to me, they gave him more power. They gave him the power to say, you keep doing you. It's okay what you did. You know, no safety plan for me or concern about my allegations. At the time, there was an acting who went around the, the management group and he went around and, and said and spread the narrative that I had lied on the stand and that I, fl- I was floundering. I was mortified because that's not what happened at all. I didn't lie on the stand. The lied on the stand. And even that, like, think about this. If we've got two that witnessed it, then they held the court case in that courthouse. So they literally called the witness from her working in a to come out of her where she's working and come testify. I had asked through my lawyer at the time, I had asked for an outside judge, an outside courthouse, because the position that the abuser had been in and been in homicide for so many years, he knew all of the crowns, most of defense, most of the court staff. So none of it was going to be private. Like they all know who he is. Um, and now who I am, it was the only thing that I did receive was an outside judge, but that was it. And I just think that that was completely inappropriate and that the court system failed in that regard. And this acting going around and spreading these lies in his position of power and at at the top of the misogynistic food chain, he ensured to spread a narrative that continues to spread around the organization today. But this narrative that he spread, it's actually a, a national, possibly even a global narrative for police women around the world. We're the liars. We're the rats. How dare we, you know, oh, it's a simple bra strap pull. Sounds like it goes hand in hand with kind of rape culture. Absolutely. And how we view victims societally, yes. right? Yes. Yeah. Um, that larger, those larger overarching ideologies that then play out as experiences exactly. for women. And so when there was a few other women that I, I had, no one had gone to the SIU, but their allegations against the same abuser um, were not considered by the SIU to be sexual assaults, which is all the SIU can deal with. They can't deal with sexual harassment. It's not under their mandate. So the SIU was aware of it, but it, charges were not pursued against him in regards to that. So when I heard they were bringing him back to work, I knew of two of the women who had gone to the SIU. So I reached out to them and I said, I don't know if you're aware, but he's being brought back to work before a police service act investigation is done. And he's being brought back into the, to the office. And they were like, Oh my God. And I said, I can't do this alone. Are you willing to come to the association and speak about what happened to you? And they said, yes. And one of them said, and I know another female and this is who it is. And I was like, wow, I I know that person very well. So I reached out to her and I said, I heard something happened with you and with that abuser on you years ago. And she confirmed it. And I said, are you willing to come to the association? And she said, yes. So the four of us made an appointment and we went up to the association and we had a meeting with the association lawyer, the association president and our association rep. 
And we disclosed what had happened to us. And then a very well-written letter was written to the acting at the time, basically saying, here are the allegations. Here's the human rights and collective... Here's all the things that are being breached by him and that he should not be in the workplace. And it was at that point that they put him off on this. (laughs) I've never had the opportunity to be off on approved time off. (laughs) Not suspension, not my back bank, not my anything. He was on this random approved time off getting paid wage while they figured out what to do. So they don't let him come back to work. I have letters that say, you know, they write back and well, he's not going to be at work anytime soon, but no, he's not under suspension. And we force the issue of an outside police service investigating the sexual assault and investigating the four of our allegations. So an outside police service uh, eventually takes over and starts their investigation. Within about, I guess, I want to say six to eight weeks of them beginning the investigation. And they had interviewed at least enough people at that point that they contacted the of the service investigating, contacted the service that I work for, the two And it was said he that the abuser needed to be suspended immediately from the information that they had received thus far. Then, so then he is suspended again. And he gets suspended again. And this investigation by the outside outside service takes over a year. And I, my understanding is they interviewed over 50 police officers. My understanding is that there were numerous allegations of different things that go from sexual harassment to sexual assault to racist comment, um, bullying and harassment of men and women. And in the end of it all, like I've never, that's another thing. I've never received the report. I've never been allowed to look at it. None of us have. I would love to see it. And I can't wait to get my hands on it because I believe there's a lot more in there, a lot more offenses that he committed that he was not Well, he wasn't found to, he didn't have to deal with any of them because once they knew, once the allegations were substantiated, so last summer, I finally get pulled in by lawyer and the new director of human resources at my workplace. And I get served a document letting me know that my allegations were substantiated by this outside service. And I know through the other three women, theirs are substantiated. One, they tried to say it's substantiated, but it was already investigated, you know, 17 years prior. It wasn't, wasn't, wasn't properly investigated at all. And had they properly investigated that 17 years ago, perhaps none of us would be in the situation that we were now in. Wow. Talk about, that just sounds like a like a lack of transparency, right? So they have this report sitting there, yet you have no access to it. Yeah. Yeah. And not only that, but I believe the report that the outside police service has is probably, I would love to see the one that they did. And then I would love to see the one that probably eradicated numerous information out of. That's what I believe. Why do you think they're keeping that? 
Is it normal that they yeah keep- they say that they that's not that's not to be shared? And I'm like, well, I'm the complaining. I kind of feel like <laughs> it should be shared. So I'm hoping through the human rights tribunal process that we'll be able to get that in disclosure. Certainly a goal. So my my understanding through a source is that six police women's allegations were substantiated. Six. And that's just the ones who had the courage to tell the truth. That's just the ones that were pulled in for interviews because SIU doesn't go out and see people. And um, certainly this outside police service, they didn't investigate like we would do an investigation. Following up with every single person and getting statements from everybody, like sometimes I just feel like the bare minimum gets done. Although they did substantiate six of the charges, I was very happy to see. But to me, that just meant that it was, there was clearly an issue here with this abuser, which we all knew anyway. And then they never served him. So he's found to have committed these offenses by an outside police service under the Police Service Act. And they just don't serve them. Are there any time frames specified under the Police Services Act in which they have to serve somebody? So, yes. But in my case, he, when the charges were withdrawn for no prospect of conviction in the criminal case, he agreed in the courtroom that day, he agreed to waive the fact that he hadn't been served within this six-month period. So my the allegations that were substantiated against me, he should have been charged or served immediately on mine. The other women's, they, they had to go to the police services board to ask for this extension, which would have been granted. But they didn't go in the June meeting and ask for it. They didn't ask for it in the July meeting. They didn't ask for it in the August meeting, the September meeting, and then October, he retires. Sounds like the onus is squarely on the shoulder of the victim. Absolutely. So he, the from the service that I work for that works, that is, you know, the organization's lawyer, which to me means she's lawyer. She's not there for me. I don't call her up and say, Hey, can you help me? She told me in when I was being, when she served me the documents saying that my allegations were substantiated against him by the outside service. She told me that they had notified his lawyer because I asked like, okay, so what's happening now? When does he get served notice of the PSA charges? And they said, well, um, we haven't done that yet. We're, I've let his lawyer know that these allegations have been substantiated and, you know, that we're going to the PSB to ask for, uh, to ensure that we can proceed. And I said, you've told his lawyer, but you haven't served him. And I said, why would you do? She said, oh, well, it's just, it's just, you know, courtesy from one lawyer to another. I go, oh, courtesy from one lawyer to another. I go, well, isn't that nice? I go, where's the courtesy for me? Where's the courtesy for me and all these other women? Courtesy for him. I'm like, you kidding? So yeah, he gets four months to figure out what he's going to do in that four months time. My understanding is that he had gone to the senior officers association to see if they would pay 
for him to fight against us and say and plead not guilty. And they said no. And I understand he also went to the organization to ask if they would pay for it. And it was a big no. So then he's like, okay, so I'll retire. And I, I, I don't know what package he, he gets or got, but I think they wanted him to go away. I think they paid him a whole lot of money. And their purpose of getting him out of there without serving him the PSA, you know, they made all these excuses. Ultimately, what it is, they don't want the public to know this man was hired by them. They don't want the public to know what's actually happening behind blue doors because that's what's happening. This is what's happening. Because when he retires, he can't be charged by under the police services act anymore. Exactly. So he retired with his pretty little uh, wage pension package. He had 30 years already on. So he's at full. He can apply to other police services. He can apply and be put in positions of trust and authority. You know, if I had treated a victim the way I've been treated in the special victims unit, I would have been police act charged. He's not under the offender registry. He's not like nothing. Like we know this has happened and now he gets to just go out into society. And, you know, if he's doing this to women who are police officers, what the hell do you think he's doing to the regular public? Can you tell us going through that experience, what has it been like for you? sort of physically, emotionally, what's happened for you throughout three years or four years that it's been going on? I stopped recognizing myself. I guess um, originally it was immense grief. That was the only way I knew how to describe it. It was immense grief. Um, when you are so entrenched in this culture, it's it's such an assault on your mental state your physical state, you know, while I was off on stress leave, I got cancer. And, you know, people will say, well, you can't equate having cancer to like that being the reason. And I can honestly say like when I went, when I found out I had cancer and I did all the testing I had to do, they said to me, okay, well, you're, you're triple negative, which means it's not hormone based at all which means we're sending you for genetic testing and they pay for it because they don't know why you have cancer. So I was tested that way. And then I had the genetic testing and the genetic testing said, it came back that I had no mutations of my chromosomes. So when I sat with the geneticist, she said to me, she's like, okay, so basically what this is, is it's not hormone based and it's not genetic based. And I said, so how do we know? And she's like, basically, we don't. She said, the only, she's like, no doctor will come out and like say it. But the only reason we have right now in science for why someone in your situation has cancer is stress or exposure. And I said, well, I was off on a stress wow. leave when this happened. So I believe my everybody's grief and um, going through these these traumatic experiences, everyone's Everything for everybody manifests differently. Some people, it's more mentally than physical. Some people, it's more physical than mental. Mine has certainly been both anxiety, panic attack. And I need to be very clear that the the way I felt isn't just because of the one incident of the sexual assault. What 
tormented me and what tore me apart was the second assault. And the second assault was the reprisal against me by, by the organization over and over and over again. That is what destroyed me. Join us October 6th to listen to part two of Lee's story. Thanks for joining us today. You can listen to the episodes on Spotify, Apple Podcast, and YouTube. When you subscribe, you will be notified of new episodes as they air. And don't forget to follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And check out our website at www.behindbluedoors.org. Take care, and until next time.